This podcast is brought to you by Trivelo Coaching, where we help triathletes and cyclists like you train smarter to race faster. I'm your host, Jordan Donnelly, and on my left is former Australian Ironman champion and head coach of Trivelo Coaching, Jared Donnelly. Athletes often make the mistake of doing the wrong type of training at the wrong time of year. How do you know when you should be doing what type of training? When should you be doing your strength block versus your threshold block versus your base or build block? When should you spend more time focusing on your weaknesses versus continuing to improve your strengths and things you're already good at? These are all common questions when designing a training program. So today we're going to discuss the five major reasons you should think about changing your training program and what you should be focusing on instead. Dad, welcome to the episode. Big one today. We've got a lot to get through. Let's start with our normal segment. What are you grateful for? Thanks, George. Uh, And for those who are watching the video and not listening, uh, the reason why Jordan's jaw is yellow is because he's had four wisdom teeth removed um so i imagine he's grateful for painkillers but uh, we'll see what he's grateful for but um what am i grateful for well <laughs> during the uh, last two years um my wife and i have been lucky enough to escape covid so far we presume we're going to all of us are going to get it and it's going to be at some point there'll be more people who've had COVID than haven't had COVID and we're in that category still and I'm grateful that we haven't had to experience the the uh you know the uncomfortableness of having COVID and uh, everything that goes with it and you know that that goes with training you know it is going to knock your consistency um you know way out of left field and and I'm so grateful that so far um, I've, I've avoided it and I'm be doing everything I can to keep avoiding it um but yeah that's my gratitude a lot of people have said to me, oh, I, I kind of just want to get it and get it over with. And I, my reply to them is, no, you don't. <laughs> I know that, yeah, a lot of people are going to get it. It might be inevitable, but uh, for me, it wasn't a fun experience. And uh, for a lot of our athletes, it's interrupted their training enough that you'd rather just not get it if you can avoid it. I think most people are looking for the timing of it. You, you yeah. have time when to get things. So yeah. unfortunately, uh, you know, I'm getting text messages, you know, Unfortunately, I have got COVID now. Sorry, Jared. And I'm saying it's not your fault. You know, it's just going to be inevitable at some point. Yeah. Uh, you're right. My gratitude is uh, for painkillers, but that's that's not my actual gratitude. I am just grateful for that. Um, I firstly, before I say my gratitude, I want to say that a listener emailed in uh, a really nice email just about how much they value the podcast, how much they uh, are using the training tips to help them in their training and racing. Uh, but more importantly, they said the biggest thing they've taken from the podcast is the gratitude and how uh, every day they actually are feeling really grateful to just be able to use their body and train. And that was really powerful. And I really liked that email. Uh, so thanks for that listener for sending it in. And uh, that's why we do these gratitudes at the start of the episodes. Uh, but my gratitude is quite simply, uh, th- I think uh, since the 1st of January, and I don't want to curse this, uh, so I'm touching wood, but since the 1st of January, we've had, I think, two days of rain, maximum two, three, but I, I'm really sure it's two. Um, and that is an incredible run of weather. And it is so nice just to have that stretch of really good weather. And I'm really grateful for it. And I think everyone's mood is improved a little bit uh, in this warm summer weather. So that's my gratitude. Moving on to our next segment and what has caught your attention. So, Dad, what has caught your attention recently? I suppose putting my coaching hat on, um, I'm I'm really sometimes probably thinking that I'm not getting my messages across. Um, and I want to really get people to understand that your training and testing accurately is the key thing to enabling you to prepare a really good race plan. Um, so, um, so I've had a few comments saying um, I didn't realise that, for example, the sub-threshold session, which is crucial to race practice for 70.3, as an example, and you use those sub-threshold sessions in training to work out what race plan, what power strategy you're going to use on race day for a 70.3. And if you've been doing those sessions uh, inaccurately, and what do I mean by that? I mean, if you start at point A and finish three quarters of the way around down the road and then turn around and, and say you're doing a 30K effort and you do 24K in one direction and 6K in the other direction, you have got a very inaccurate um, model to use when you're looking back at your training history to use as a race plan um, example. So we want it to be even out and back so that you've got equal amount of time with the headwind and equal amount of time with the tailwind and equal amount of time in the undulations. 
And if it's if it's not done like that, you've got one direction. It could be a tailwind the whole way. Your power will be accurate, but your average speed is what we're also looking for, the average speed against what power. And if you do it in one direction, you have a headwind the whole way, you could do the appropriate uh, power that you're asking for, which might be 200 watts, but you could average 24 k's an hour into a headwind for the whole 30 k. Or if you're going with a tailwind, you could average you know, 45 k's an hour. That is useless information uh, to use when you're trying to see what your predicted time is going to be against your average speed and then your power. The three things that we use in our race plan is the average power uh, for your uh, for your effort, uh, the average speed, and that, that will then dictate what the time is for your 90 kilometres. So I'm really trying to get across that you need to understand each session and the requirements so that you get that right. So it's useful for when you're preparing for your race plan. And the same goes for if you do one of these uh, training efforts uh, around a loop. So you might do like a um, a uh, in Melbourne, for example, there's the Albert Park loop. So you, you ride around the park and it's a it's a five, five point K. something yep. circuit. Um, but if you start and finish at different points, you might have gotten an extra um, half a lap with a massive tailwind, which is often the case at that particular course. And so that's not helpful data either. And so you said athletes, you, know, you might be doing a 30K time trial, but do it based on the full lap compared to the distance. You'd rather than do 28.7K, but complete the laps rather than getting to the 30K, but have incomplete laps where they got more of a headwind or tailwind because it, it affects the average speed. Spot on. What has caught my attention is uh, I have been uh, delving a lot into uh, nutrition studies uh, just because nutrition is still such a complex uh, topic, uh, especially in the endurance and triathlon world. And there's constant new research coming out uh, and I, we've had Dr. Harry on the podcast, which is super valuable information, but it's something that people still aren't getting right. And it's such a major part of racing uh, when there's no clear direction. So our goal this year is that to actually really help triathletes with uh, nutrition and, and release some uh, really helpful. Uh, we, we've got some plans in the works to help uh, release some things that are really going to help people with a nutrition strategy, a really specific nutrition strategy. But anyway, a key point of the study was, uh, I wanted to point out, was looking at carb loading. And this study uh, analyzed 67 uh, previous studies over the last 30 years um, and gathered up as much information as possible to provide some uh, as many updated reviews and recommendations as possible. And uh, basically, their, their summary on carb loading was, I'm going to quote this here, uh, for events lasting greater than 90 minutes, uh, glycogen supercompensation, otherwise known as carb loading, uh, in the preceding 36 to 48 hours before your event uh, may help improve performance by 2 to 3%. So that's an important factor. But you know, two to three percent doesn't sound like a lot, but if you take two to three percent of a half Ironman or Ironman, you know, two to three percent of four hours or two to three percent of um, 10 hours, uh, that's a lot of time. You know, you're talking potentially 10, 20 minutes there um, at two to three percent. So uh, that's not a small amount. Uh, traditionally, it had been recommended that in order to double glycogen stores in this classic supercompensation or carb loading model, uh, you would have to exhaust your glycogen stores with high-intensity exercise prior to a high-carbohydrate high intake. Um, but recent studies have shown, and this is the point I, I thought was interesting and it would be good for athletes to know, is that uh, short-term high-intensity exercise followed by just a one-day high uh, intake of carbohydrates uh, similarly achieves the glycogen supercompensation or carb loading and can maintain that for three days. So, if you just do um, a one-day one high-intensity session uh, and then their recommendation of carbohydrate intake, uh, quote-unquote carb loading amount, is 10 to 12 grams per kilogram for the day, and that's up from a uh, daily recommended range of 6 to 10 grams per kilogram depending on the athlete. So if we take a 100-kilogram athlete, for example, they would normally uh, ingest 600 to 1,000 grams of carbohydrate per day uh, depending on their training load. And in this supercompensation period, they would then ingest 1,000 to 1,200, so um, well above that. Uh, for, for a um, 70 or 80 kilo athlete, uh, it's hard to do the maths in my head without a calculator in front of me, but it would be something under that. But uh, the, the, the latter point about um, the fact that it could just be done with a short-term high-intensity bout followed by a massive increase in carbohydrates uh, they said is really important to consider clinically as it gives the athlete additional flexibility uh, with gastrointestinal uh, intolerability or GI distress um, prior to competition. Competition. So a lot of athletes suffer from 
stomach problems in the race uh, and often trying to carb load for three days up to your race uh, ends up just contributing to the problem. Whereas uh, this is basically saying, it, uh, you know, this recommendation, this strategy isn't as aggressive yet still has the same results. Um, so I thought that was really cool and just a, um, a unique way to do it. It's actually in line with how we like to prepare for a race by doing, you know, a really short high intensity session three days out. Um, and if you just follow that up with a higher carb in- carbohydrate intake, then uh, that's a good carb loading race strategy. That's a fantastic article, Jordan. Um, you know, just so happens that uh, Geelong 70.3 is on Sunday for a lot of athletes uh, that we're coaching. Um, and they would, you know, they would be on Thursday, be doing um, a relatively high intense session. And it's really good to know that they could uh, end up doing one 24-hour period of, of carb loading post that high intensity session and get to race day with getting almost the same 2 to 3% outcome improvement. And you don't have the same bloatedness. You don't feel like you could possibly put on two or three kilo mm. um, and you get trying to, to yep. yeah, and, and trying to carb load and you're a heavier athlete and you've done all the work to get yourself as lean as possible and it can be undone. So this is a really significant and something that I'm going to actually try for my B race on Sunday. So, um, you know, do the high intensity session and then spend 24 hours, um, uh, you know, trying to load with some carbs more than I would normally and then revert back to my normal eating habits uh, and see see how that comes uh, on race day. But as you know, there are many variables and it, it can always not be, <laughs> or I did well because of that. Well, it could be, but it also could be because I trained better or I prepared <laughs> better or I had a better race plan or... <laughs> Et cetera, et cetera. It's never one reason, but it could mm-hmm. be a contributing factor. Yeah, and you might you might just energy-wise feel um, subjectively quite different to what you normally do. And so you do this experiment and think, oh, geez, that, that was nice. We're going to try that again. Um, just in terms of application, like we said, uh, the recommendation was 10 to 12 grams per kilogram. So, Dad, you're about 70 kilograms. So you would just times that by 10 to 12, and that is the amount of carbohydrates and grams you want to take in, which is a lot, you know, I would guess uh, based on your daily intake, you would be having 300 grams of carbs per day, something around there. And so to have 70 times 10 at a minimum 700, um, that's almost double what you normally have. So um, it'd be interesting to see how you feel with that. I think I can give it a go, Jordan. I'm pretty, <laughs> I'm pretty good with the sweet tooth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, and muffin, muffins are, you know, they're always staring at me, and I don't get them, so I'm yeah, allowed the, to. This this summary didn't actually give any indication <laughs> as to what source of carbs, but um, we'll get into the topic of today. So, five major reasons to potentially change your training program right now. Is there a time when you would change your training program? And on this note of preparing for uh, the race on Sunday, Dad, you've got you're doing the 90 kilometer time trial on the weekend as part of the team's race for the half. Ironman and you did something different today Uh, you did instead of a short high intensity session uh, you've done a 30 minute time trial a threshold session Uh, and why did you I want to ask you straight off the bat in terms of talking about changing your program why did you decide to do that um, which is different to what you'd normally do um, a threshold session so close to the actual event well it's great that this topic is being talked about today because um, you know I've had 30 or 40 years of of the same type of preparation taper plan going into each event, which has been reasonably successful, you might say. But just because it's reasonably successful, does that mean I can't do better than that? So I like to experiment on myself. And this is an experiment that I'm doing. It's not my A race. It's a race I, you know, and that is another question in itself, you know, for me, Whenever I put a number on, it's an A race. But <laughs> but I know that, you know, I'm not – the A race ref- refers to how tapered am I, how fresh am I. Um, in my mind, it's an A race. Mm-hmm. Every race I do is an A race. I don't care if it's marbles. It's an A, a race, marbles, <laughs> marbles race. So, yeah. so the point I'm making is I'm trying to see if I can improve my – uh, my my preparation for a race. Uh, if I can if I can perform better, and already I've added one change, which is um, your recommendation to carb load for one day rather than three. And now I'm doing a second change, which is uh, not do a short high intensity session that's kind of over under, um, but do a threshold session. 
Um, so that was the, that's the one reason. I want to see if I can improve my preparation um, and the outcome will be on, on race day. I'll be able to decide that. There's another reason as well. Um, I'm not 100% convinced about my current accurate number, my, my FTP number. So, you know, I just want to reconfirm in my own mind, put myself at ease, that yes, this is the number I'm taking into this race. Um, and my race plan is based around today's uh, threshold session, which is literally three days before the event. And, um, you know, people might say, well, well that's, that's too intense for, for, you know, something that's so close to an event. It might well be. I might perform poorly on the weekend as a result of that. I'll never know it's exactly for that reason. It could be that, you know, the carb loading didn't help me either, but we'll soon find out whether it was a contributing factor to a good performance or a, a same performance or, or a worse performance. But I do know that um, I'm going to try and do things differently to see if, if it does make a difference. And, and that's what I do as a coach to try things on myself before, uh, you know, and obviously getting some anecdotal evidence from proper scientific studies to back up my thoughts and theories. And, and you know, who knows, people could be doing threshold sessions uh, as part of their, but, you know, you've got to remember, and, and all jokes aside, everybody is going to have a different um uh, reaction to different uh, tapering methods and what works for one person is not a blanket um, method that you would use for every single person and that's one of the jobs that each athlete needs to find out is well you know in the post-race analysis how was my Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday before race day you know what things should I maybe reconsider that were good or bad or poor um, and you know these are one of the things that I'll definitely be looking at you know was that helpful? But it, it certainly, from a psychological point of view, I confirmed that the number I'm thinking I should be writing at is exactly right. So, um, so that's good. Um, it gives me confidence. I'm happy with that. Um, it's still fractionally lower than I'd like it to be, but that's the reality of I'm going into into the race with a real number, and I'm not going into the race with a fictitious number that I that I have ambitions for. And if I feel good throughout the race, I will start to push myself. But these are examples I'm trying to give to everybody I coach that um, that you can't go into a race with a, a number that has no relevance to you. Um, you know, the ambition and ability, that confusion topic that I keep saying, you know, what you want to do and what you really can do, they have to be very closely aligned. And and if you get that right, you won't make a mistake. Um, but if you if you have um, unrealistic um, expectations of the power number, um, you'll fall flat on your face. You will absolutely creep home, and then you won't be able to run. Um, so, so it's a harsh lesson. Um, but but that's why I said in the um, what's caught my attention. Um, you know, getting the training uh, right prior to uh, your race plan is absolutely crucial. Um, and that's the numbers that you're going to work work from. Um, so that's that's kind of the reason I'm doing it. That's Reasons. Really, yeah, yeah, that's a really good answer. And that, that middle reason you spoke about really ties in with this topic really well. And it's kind of the first major reason you should consider changing your training program is if you have time and you're at a stage of the year where uh, the result of the race um, isn't your your big goal race, like you said, every race you want to do well in, Um but it's a good opportunity to change things up and experiment a little bit and see if you can improve on a routine you already have, even if you have a race routine that you know works really well um, and suits you. Uh, sometimes it's a good idea to, to experiment with that and uh, you'll get a winning answer either way. Either you'll find out that, wow, I can do something to improve that or you'll find out that, no, this is a really good routine I shouldn't, and I shouldn't mess with it. Yep, I totally agree with, with that and um, and. As I've said many times, you just have to find out what's working for you. And and as as you get older through your journey as an athlete, they that may change. And and at the start, I said, you know, just because it works doesn't mean that you can't improve it. And and you know, that's what really the basic overload principle is. You know, you, you set a standard and you want to get better. So you you try to train a little bit harder or a little bit smarter or or do something different that's going to um, that's going to improve you um, uh, at the end of the day. That's what we want. We want to get improvement uh, for all the effort we're putting in. 
Another major reason you might need to consider changing your training program is to focus on a weakness of yours. And you might have a really clear weakness. You might be um, an unbelievable rider and runner, but a horrible swimmer. Or you might be a gun swimmer. You're getting out of the um, swim leg first and your, your bike's quite good. And then your running is 10 minutes behind um, the rest of your pack. So, uh, Or if you're a cyclist, you might have uh, a lot of aspects of your cycling down pat, but you're really weak on certain sections and that's letting you down in races. So when is it time for you to uh, bite the bullet a little bit and focus on those weaknesses? Because doing that kind of training really sucks because it's <laughs> you have to go through that whole adaptation period of uh, your body getting used to it. Uh, you don't, you're not performing well. You're, you're a lot further back than you used to be because you're strong in other areas. So when is it time to bite that bullet and, and spend some time focusing on your weaknesses? It's funny because it hits you right in the face the minute you finish your event. You get clarity, don't you? Mm-hmm. You have clear understanding of what you did well and what you did poorly. And if you don't have that, you need to go and search in your post-race analysis. So so as soon as you've finished your A race, um, that would be the time for me where I would go, okay, um, and let's just take one sport. Let's not, let's not talk about I'm weaker in one of the three or mm-hmm. compared to the other. Just I, I was able to ride the power for 70K and then I faded badly. That is something I need to improve. It's not because I started too high. I started at the right number. I started bang on my plan and 250 watts is what I was trying to ride at. I got to 70K and all of a sudden, 250 became extremely difficult to push. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then 245 became my next norm. And then 240 with with 5K to go, I was pushing 240 instead of 250. I dropped 10 watts. Mm-hmm. There's something that needs improving. And that is being strong at the back end of a 90K time trial. So you've identified something straight away. You need to improve your endurance aerobic fitness. And so I would then go out and start to do sessions that are going to enable me to improve my aerobic fitness, which might mean doing some more endurance, um, getting some strength into my legs so that I am strong in the back end of uh, any of the races that I do that I can hold the same power mm-hmm. no matter what I'm talking about as a swimmer or a runner I can hold the same pace when I'm running and not fade from five minute k pace when I'm trying to aim to run the whole the whole half marathon and I end up at 520 for the last 5k that's because I've you know <clears throat> I don't have the endurance um, or the strength to keep holding that pace so I might need to go back and do more of that sort of strength work and longer endurance work to enable me to stop fading um, so there's an example of, of you know, things that you can, you need to identify first where your weakness is. So you may have sucked at the swim and most people know whether they're a really good swimmer, an average swimmer or a shocker. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's a work in progress with the swimming. It's not going to be something that you can improve in a minute. You know, it could take a year to improve. You know, we've got plenty of examples of people improving 20 seconds per hundred, um, but they started at 140. Uh, sorry, 240 per 100 meters, and now they're down to 220. So those improvements are probably expected if you get some really good stroke technique. Um, but you still suck at swimming if you're swimming 220 um, per per 100. And your goal would be to you know start to get down to two minutes per 100. And now you're starting to be with the field in most races. And you know that can happen, but that's going to take a long time. It's not something you can fix in in a phase of a year's training. It it is a long term plan where you know you have to accept that it's a big picture and it's going to take a year or 18 months or two years to go from 240 to two minutes and let's face it 40 seconds per 100 is a lot to knock off it's like saying i want to i'm 100 kilo and i want to be 80 in in 18 weeks you know well that's probably way too quick to do that um you know that's that's something that's unrealistic so you want to you want to actually um, change things that need help, but understand the timeline that it's going to take. So, so that's one aspect to look at. Um, so, you know, as a bike rider and as a as a runner, you know, you have ample opportunity in the the period straight after your A race to start putting down, you know, in note form what things you want to focus on. Um, yes, I need to be stronger at the back end. I'm just using that as an example. Or um, 
or my my FTP is actually too low for me to actually ride any faster than 35 k's an hour in any race. The only way I can ride faster is to improve my FTP. So I start. I need to do be doing more threshold training and more VO2 work. That's going to build my engine. That's going to give me a higher FTP, which means I can ride a, a, a faster time or higher average pace on the bike. Which means my 230 for a 90 uh, kilometer time trial can now be a 225 just because i've improved my threshold um, so so they're things that you will find out as soon as you finish that that a race and they're your goals and you need to write them down and make that a focus i've just given two examples one to improve your endurance post-race due to the fading aspect mm-hmm. one to him if you want to ride faster as an example you need to improve your ftp or, or your vo2 as well so so there they would be things that you would then put into place and if your a race is followed by which it should be with a period of um, downtime where you're recovering um, your next a race you know shouldn't really be four weeks later it should be possibly three months or six months um, or even if it's a massive Ironman that you've just done, it could possibly be eight months you know, to 12 months later. So, so that's a good period of time for you to work on those things, unlike the swimming thing, which you know, is really a year to two years where we're, we're really focusing on trying to improve that. So there's lots of little things you can do straight after your post-A race that you can set yourself goals, make sure that they're the focus of every week, and, and then you won't have this uh, negativity associated with, oh, God, another threshold training session. No, I need to do this because if I want to actually ride, you know, a three-hour to a two-hour, 50, 90-kilometer uh, bike leg, this is the session that's going to help me do that. And that's a motivator to me, um, you know. Many people out there are going, you know, I'm training my ass off and I'm not getting any better. Well, you're not training the right sessions, you know. You need to identify where you're weak, firstly. And, you know, if you see you're someone who's able to ride, you're a two-hour 45, 90-kilometer 90, 90 bike rider, and you see someone going two hours 20, well, how do they get there? Well, you know, the sessions that you need to do that are varied and vast and and, you know, they're the things that you need to focus on. You know, even though they're hard in training, you need to know that if I do these sessions, the, it will make me a better bike rider, for example. So embrace those sessions because you know the value you have of them. And I, and I suppose I really get frustrated with people who go, oh, you know, the negative side of doing threshold or, or VO2 because it's so difficult. Well, just remember, you're asking to improve yourself. Don't avoid the things that are going to make it happen. And remember, there's not a lot of people training like that. And you will, you will all of a sudden start to be a better uh, triathlete because of that. And people will notice it. What are you doing? Why, why all of a sudden you can ride a kilometre an hour faster over this distance of 40K? You know, what stuff are you doing? And it's your little secret that you've, you know, you've basically identified where you're wrong. You've found out when to do it um, in your season and come the next test, which might be your next B race or C race or or time trial or, you know, testing uh, or your A race, uh, that you are a better athlete than you were post last race. So, so yes, it is important to know when to do it. And as I say, as soon as you finish your last A race, that's the time to be really uh, critical of your own performance. So, you, that based on that summary, you're a big believer in identifying the weakness straight away and working on it straight away. Um how much should you sacrifice uh, other parts of your training program and things that you're doing really well for your weaknesses? So I know this uh, is, uh, I know your answer was as always going to say it depends on what it is, but in some of those examples, you know, swimming weakness, um, we spoke last week on the podcast about uh, there's not much point in in doing more than two or three swim sessions a week because of the uh, minimal time gains uh, possible compared to the bike or run. Um you spoke about bike endurance, you know, how much do you start focusing on these? Because the more you do that, something else has to give in your training week. So how do you approach that kind of sacrifice? And um, yeah, what's your mindset around that? Yeah, I, it just doesn't have to be as a swimmer, biker and runner. It, it, it could be that what's holding you back is your poor flexibility or, or lack of strength um, or lack of core Um in your body so it might be that you need to add other things into your program as well um and you know being able to be unable to hold form is another example of a post-race analysis um i mean your body posture form 
um, where as a runner, if I took a photo of you in the first two or three K and then I took a photo of you at 48, uh, 38 K in the marathon, you would possibly look differently. And the guy who has got really good uh, core strength and flexibility, I suppose, with his, with his action is going to run and look the same. Um, even though they're fatigued, mm-hmm. and you've seen so many good bike riders who, who are riding beautifully, and all of a sudden they pop, um, and you go, "Oh, I didn't see that coming," and it's because they've got such great form. It's just that their fitness let them down. Mm-hmm. They had great core, great, great uh, posture, great efficiency, uh, great efficiency, but their just fitness was the thing that you know. And I've I've been around guys who look a million bucks, and all of a sudden they're dropped, and I. You know, you know, when I've spoken to them, they say, oh, I haven't been training, but they still look like they're, they're pedaling or running or swimming beautifully. It's just that they lack the fitness to keep it going. So, yeah, so, you know, to answer that question, I think that's, that's what you should be, you know, focusing the most on is um, sacrifice, sacrifice the general to be more specific. Um, we always advocate that if you bring everything along the journey, um, bring your aerobic fitness, uh, bring your recovery, bring your tempo, bring your threshold, bring your VO2, and just spend a little bit more percentage on the things that are weaker. Because um, in our training program, we're concentrating on all those things. So, you know, keep the recovery the same, add more time to the endurance, which might only be adding 15 minutes or or 20 minutes or 30 minutes to your endurance ride, um, changing it to the hills rather than the flat. Um, um, doing the VO2 set where, you know, you're concentrating on doing a block of that rather than just doing, um, you know, one uh, race-ready phase of that, you know, do that in the build phase as well. Um, um, so, you know, in the base phase is obviously the period where you can do a lot more less intense stuff, but but introduce that threshold riding in there straight away if that's what's lacking. Um, so that, you know, the more times you train at threshold, and for those who listen to Anna, uh, Davis's World One Hour uh, accomplishments from last week's podcast will understand the specificity of what it takes to be the best one hour uh, female, um, you know, 57 year old and second best in Australia and ninth best in the world at 57. It's because she's specifically training the things that are going to happen on race day. Hyper specialized. Yeah. And, and so, you know, as a triathlete, it's a the bike I'm picking on here or, or or the run, it is a threshold time trial. So you need to spend time at that. And because as human beings, we like to avoid the things that are uncomfortable, we avoid doing those sessions. And you know from what I've told you in private that the last since the Nationals road race on January the 13th or 14th, I've probably done eight threshold time trials since. Um, and you know, there is no way known after my post-race analysis that I was going to, this is a great example (laughs) of me, you know, talking the talk and actually doing something about it to myself. And, and I don't expect that I'm going to improve in three weeks. Mm -hmm. This is a big plan that, you know, by August, September, October, all the work I'm doing now is going to prove fruitful. Um, But it's very uncomfortably mentally and physically to line up a minimum at this stage once a week for a threshold race and that's what i've been doing and and that takes a lot of mental strength to line up and know that you're going to be suffering for you know just i just did a 30 minute one um whether it's 23 minutes 20 minutes or 10 minutes or or 40 minutes it, it is going to be you on the on the the rivet for that period of time it's uncomfortable and it hurts but but i'm all the time thinking this is going to make me better. That's that's all I care about. What do I need to do to get that number from where I don't like it being to where I like it being? And that that is the basis for my thought process. I'm really glad you gave that example of yourself. So, uh, you know, if we're taking, if I want to I want to dive into that example just a little bit more. And you've done the post race analysis. You identified a big weak spot uh, that you hadn't been focusing on enough. You've started smashing it um, and really focusing on that. Uh, so much so that you are doing that session more than others. That means some other sessions you'd normally do, be doing have uh, you've dropped them for the time being. How long do you plan on doing this for? Um, what's your what's your general plan around it? And uh, how long do you think is wise to do for before you start reintroducing some of the other core sessions that you normally do? 
Yeah, and I, I, you know, we always talk in blocks, and some of our blocks are two weeks, some of them are three weeks. So, you know, with the recovery, so it ends up being four weeks with the recovery or three weeks. So, I, my plan is to do two blocks of this mm-hmm. um, as my as my, you know, and unfortunately, just happens to be in the middle of some of the uh, triathlon races. But th- that's not my A races. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are these are these are events that are going to help me get to my September, mm-hmm. um, and. You know that's where I'm working backwards from. So I'm going to be doing eight weeks of this, and then reintroducing um, some of the VO2 stuff that I've actually stopped doing. It's really the whole big picture, and that's just one session. Um, and making sure that I'm actually building the leg strength again by getting back into the hills and making sure that I do have an average of you know three or four thousand meters of vertical elevation average each week. Um, they're things that that are crucial to me being strong again um, when it counts and not being uh, susceptible to fading, um, which is, um, you know, my race plan was good, but my power number was too low. So um, so I want the power number to go up. So I have to do these things to enable me to ride faster. And and you know, that's as, as simple as I can make it. But, yes, I, I definitely have to have a, enough period. So in my opinion, you need two blocks, um, you know, I always talk about 30 days makes a habit, um, but basically two blocks, um, which is, you know, 60 days um, roughly. Mm-hmm. Um, um, it's it's 60 days for me. To, you know, I've got the habit after 30 and I'm getting some value after 60. Um, if I kept going for 90, um, it, it would still be okay, but I'm not sure mentally whether I could do, yep. um, do that for th- a 12-week period of um, doing – basically a, a, a race you know I, we raced on sunday and i raced on thursday basically so mm-hmm. i've done two you know in the space of four days i've done two races so and i don't i don't like talking about myself but i'm just giving these examples of of how i'm experimenting on myself so that um it, it will be evidence for me to help coach people better um if this is a weakness in their in themselves um and i know that i've done this before so i know that it works but i'm actually um revisiting stuff that i knew worked but i was avoiding um and you know it takes a really poor result uh in your own mind to to get you motivated it gets me motivated anyway yeah absolutely so i want to talk about the um race ready kind of phase and that example of Anna Davis, you know, uh, how she approaches um, the race specificity. But before that, uh, when do you send people or athletes back to a uh, base building phase? When do you say, you know what, you need to go and have uh, one or two or three blocks um, worth of base building um, to really get some endurance back? Because that is always a key part of um, an underlying foundation as you talk about with any training program. Uh, but when when do you decide that you know someone needs to stop training hard or stop you know doing such high intensity stuff and go back to that? Yeah, I could use some some events as as a help. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I, th- I suppose if you the, one of the big cycling uh, grand fondos is the is the peaks um, event, which is two hundred forty k, four thousand five hundred meters elevation with three massive climbs that that you know that are over an hour and a, between an hour and two hours um, and that's an event that you need to prepare the base the base phase properly and so you know if you if you come eight weeks out from that event you're you're in a hiding to nothing you're you're going to struggle um, you're better off coming in you know that's something like 24 weeks out um, and it also as I say many times depends on what your current form is current fitness um you know that event is coming up in four weeks time on labor day um in march so the majority of the guys um have have had a great you know october november december of getting hill training uh strengthen their legs um building up from from three to four to five to six hours and they've they've progressed to seven hours some guys have done a couple of 10 and 12 hour rides but they didn't start with with 12 hours that they you know that is not what i'm saying that's you know the base phase it seems the reverse the base phase is getting your body ready to uh to be able to um, handle the load that's going to happen as you get towards your a race and this is an extreme example i'm using Um, i could use iron man but i'm using you know 
for the average rider, this race is, it's not a race, this Grand Fondo is between 10 and 12 hours. For some, it's 14. For some, it's eight. So the the range is vast. Um, so, so you would think that we would start with, you know, really long, slow training. Well, we do, but we, we start with three to four hours. But if you've already come, um, you know, f- with to the program or to this um, uh, event already with four hours, four hours to five hours for the last seven years, then you don't need to start at three hours or three mm-hmm. and a half, you know, and you don't need to be ramming um, seven, 10 hour sessions in October. You don't, um, you know, that, that will get you informed for Christmas. Um, so, you know, specificity of the event like we talked about with Anna for a one hour stuff Mm -hmm. well this could be possibly a 12 hour event so you need to know that your body can cope with the nutrition and with the um, the fitness factors and the elevation that's required in this event um, closer to the race so you want to be doing your your six seven eight nine hours you know eight weeks out Um, that's that's probably the last the last time You've done your base where you've built up to that, and then the last eight weeks is you know progressing longer um, and getting yourself prepared for the requirements of of the time of that event. Um, so it's it seems like the base phase is you doing longer stuff like the twelve hour stuff, but it's the reverse. Um, and that's the way that I would prepare any athlete, no matter what level they came to me. Um, they would be doing the longer. Um, uh, duration training, but they still do the high intensity stuff during the midweek. Um, but their their load and their ability to cope with the load um, has to be cro- progressively introduced uh, week by week, block by block. And and doing it the other way will will cause you to burn out too quickly. Or it'll cause you to get to your peak form at the wrong time. Sorry, is that what you mean by reverse? Is you're saying? people would associate base building with longer stuff, endurance, um, yep. but you can't just start a base building phase with with really long stuff. Um, is that what you mean by reverse? Yeah. Uh, you can't start with 10 hours. Yeah, yeah. Yep. When, when your body has only been coping with, let's use the extreme example, the longest ride you did up until when you started the, the PEAKS program, which was a 20-week program, the longest ride you've done was two hours. We can't start you with a long, slow ride of twelve hours. That's yeah, what yeah. I'm saying. So basically, you don't you don't need to send anyone back to a base building program uh, if they've got that if they've got that endurance behind them and they could just go straight into a five hour ride or six hour ride. You're only sending people back there if, for some reason, they've lost that endurance and they need to progressively build Spot that up on. again. Yeah. yeah. So there's two types of riders who come. One one rider who's who's already been doing this for eternity. And and the other rider who's who it's basically new to them and and they won't cope with anything but slow progressive build. So so you know that is my opinion of how how you know you can't just throw a base program at every athlete who who has got different requirements. Mm-hmm. Um, you know everybody's happy to say let's do a base build and race ready and and taper phase and that that model is fantastic. It's perfect, mm-hmm. but it's it's written differently for each person. It it has to be because some people come with no experience, some people come with general fitness, and some people come who are unbelievably fit. And so that that specifically has to change. So that that is a perfect segue into uh, understanding when you should move through the phases. So uh, you need to uh, do you need to do this base building uh, kind of uh, block if you. Uh, identify that, wow, I actually can't handle a, a five, six hour endurance ride. So I need to spend a block building up to that. Um, and then you can move into the build phase. Uh, but I want to start talking about the race ready phase. And uh, you really like to look at the professional cycling formula um, and how uh, they use the same for- formula year in, year out uh, to really get themselves into race ready form. And when that is, uh, when it's an appropriate time to change your training to that. Yeah. And look, We've got to mention these are professionals, and and we're we're trying to give advice to the average everyday average uh, triathlete, cyclist, and runner, and mountain biker, who's got a job and a fa- and a family and all sorts of time uh, limit on their their you know their days. So so let's just look at what the pros do. Um, so their formula that 
until someone comes up with a better system and I'm backing that the Norwegians will at this point. <laughs> um, um, but the formula is normally um, you have your your season and it finishes. For example, it, it might be the, the Giro might be the end of your main um, – that might have been your A race or the Tour de France might have been your A race or – the the welter might have been your a race and then the world titles are normally after that and then there's just a whole lot of other races that that they they like to do because they're professionals they need to race um you know the spring classic so there's kind of there's kind of the, the year's divided pretty pretty normally except for a covid you know period but normally we have you know um the spring classics in march and april which leads into the giro which leads into the tour which leads into the welter which leads into the world championships so that's how the year's broken up so a lot of the pro teams will will make uh you know a period after the world championships is the break period so they'll have all of their professional contracted riders having a break from from riding and that might mean completely off the bike um and you know just like as a footballer you know coming back from pre-season you don't want to actually sit at home watching telly eating pizza and drinking beer that's not what they're saying they're saying that you just need a rest from the, you know, the everyday, you know, ride your bike for fun um, with no set pro- program and, and, and do some other stuff, some cross training and do some walking and hiking and, and just keep yourself fit and go to the gym and, and do some stuff like that. They're not, they're not pushing people, but don't come back to the start of the program um, unfit and unhealthy. Keep yourself, you know, keep yourself fit and healthy during that period. So, so the next thing they're doing is they're meeting for a training camp, and that would normally be at altitude. So, they would go to the Sierra Nevada in in Spain, or they would go to, um, you know, Tenerife um, on the Isle of Man, or or wherever to the the, you know, the the French Alps, etc. Um, that's kind of an example, isn't it, of of going back to base training? But because they've already got such a good level of base, they're not starting from scratch. They're starting from you know the, yeah. the high level that their fitness is at, and then building on that. Yeah, and they're they're doing lots of you know. I, I watched Simon Clark come home from from Europe, um, and he happens to just live locally. And it was interesting watching his preparation. He he was trying to really get in some great form for the national road race in January, and he got home. I don't know. I can't remember. It was September, October, November? I'm not sure. But it was great to see him doing, you know, some really good base training around the, the Dandenongs and getting some altitude into his legs. And he was doing regular, you know three four five hour rides and um and just enjoying his bike riding but he was still doing some some really good training and uh and he was trying to get selected for a team because he was out of contract at that particular time so it was important that he did well at the uh the australian road championships at bunningall um but as it turned out he got offered a contract with uh, israel cycling um professional road team before the national titles came so he, he he didn't actually get to do that race but he's form warranted it because he kept himself in good shape from from doing this base phase when he came back from europe and and being in the australian summer he was able to train whenever he liked and daylight savings he had you know instead of having a, a european eight hours of sunlight he had you know 16 in in uh, in in australia because um, you know it was daylight at 5 30 and didn't get dark till nine so you know he had all this time and and so it was a good example of someone really uh getting themselves prepared pre and then, so he's gone from this summer to I think they went to Spain I think um, for um, their training camp and and it was great seeing him in with the team and 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 you know riding really solidly with the team and and uh, and he was well prepared for the training camp. So the training camp's not about flogging the riders; it's about actually getting them to uh, gel as a team. Uh, that's probably the, the the most important thing is to train together, but to get some strength. That why are they going at altitude and why are they in the in the mountains? They're trying to build strength and endurance where their breathing's minimal. Um, and we know from what the Norwegians have done with triathlon that that is a key a key part of their program. Getting uh, strength and strength at altitude, and we know Jan Fredino does the same as a triathlete. You know, he's back there at the moment uh, doing doing altitude training. So. So we know that that formula works, um, you know. But as an age grouper and someone who doesn't live near the mountains, that's near impossible to achieve. So, you know, you try to get yourself some training sessions that are near some hills where you live, um, and if it means you have to drive a little bit, that's what you should be doing, or ride a little bit longer to those hills. But that—that's an example of getting, getting the the 
the sessions and the blocks done at the right time. And I guess the that example of Simon Clark is um, really a specific example of your golden principle for an athlete, and that is what this professional cycling formula is basically all about. And that is that you want an athlete. The gold standard is to be at to have this uh, this fitness fire burning all year. You know, a really healthy uh, lit fire um, that at any point in time you can change your program and lift the intensity. And that's probably why Simon. Um, did so well was because he he kept that fire burning while he was in Australia and then he can just go and lift the intensity up when he needed to and go to that program. So you basically identified that at the start of the, you know, talking about these reasons you, you might need to change something is identify a weakness then change that. But if you um, are really a well-rounded athlete um, and as you just identified with the uh, base training part of the program, you don't ever need to do something drastic and, and change uh to a really, you know, just pure base building block. Um, if you have this gold standard of being a well-rounded athlete that has this fire burning all the time, and that's the aim, isn't it? Yeah, and and that's amazing because uh, people who come to us uh, um, who are just new to it um, don't have that. I call it, you know, fitness in the bank. You know, how many years have you been doing this? And that is in the bank. It's a vault. It can't be taken away from you. If you've been doing it for seven years, you've got all. You've got seven years of good bad and shocking training in your back <laughs> and and you know that just doesn't disappear it, it is value whether it's being crappy training sessions but you're still trained you know whether they're the right ones or wrong ones you're still building some level of fitness in your bank so if you come and you and you're new to it and you have zero in your bank then your body can't cope so it's a completely different scenario and you have to identify yourself who are you are you someone that's got got that and and doesn't need the same base building or are you someone that's that's desperate for that and one of the reasons why we test people at the beginning is we want to find their level where are they in their level and we can find that out straight away as a swimmer bike rider or a runner or a, or a mountain biker it doesn't matter we can find that level where you're at um, by testing you initially and then um, then you can see you know questions like what's your longest run you know, how many swim sessions have, been, have you been doing in the last four weeks? Um, what's your longest ride in the last six weeks? Um, you know, when was the last time you actually raced? Have you done any races? These are questions that are going to give us a, a really clear picture of who needs what um, at what particular stage of, of their journey. And, and hopefully they're coming to us with an aspirational goal that's 24 weeks away or at worst 16 weeks away. Um, and not something that's happening in the next six weeks. Um, but, but yeah, you know, the professionals, getting back to that, the professional uh, rider has got this um, um, get-together, uh, train solid, get the leg strength and endurance, um, not doing too much different, but doing it uh, as a group uh, at altitude um, in the hills. And then, and then what do they do next? They go and find as many little races as they can. You can see Ella Philippe going... I just watched something. I don't even know what the name of it was. It was a three-stage race <laughs> yeah. in in Spain, and here's Alaphilippe smashing himself around this race. And uh, the last, the 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 GC was decided. You know, no one even knows this race was going on. Probably, <laughs> yeah. the GC was decided on the last the last climb of the day. It was it was a serious climb. It was fifteen hundred meters. You know, and here's Alaphilippe out of his seats, trying to stay with the lead guy. And he ended up losing the GC by twenty something seconds. Yeah. But he was not relinquishing that that gc without a fight and and what is he doing that for not you know he obviously wants to win gc that's the main reason he's doing it for but he knows that this is going to get him into an incredibly fit position when he comes to whether he's doing milan san remo as his goal race or whether it's uh, Perry roubaix or whether it's tour of flanders or you know flesh alone but he has got one of these races or if not five of them in his in his sights that he wants to win and he will win one of those monuments. But why? Because he's now got competition racing. He's done his altitude. Now he's got the competition, the intensity. Um, and then all of a sudden he'll start doing a lot more serious, well-known races that may not be his A race. You know, he might go and do the first race, which is the, the, the Newsblatt race, uh, which is in two weeks time. He might do that and 
finish eighth, you know, and he doesn't care about that. It's still another competitive event for him. So that when he gets to, I'm imagining the Milan San Remo is the one he wants to win. That's that's what I kind of predict that's going to happen. But uh, but you know, that's what he, he might be working backwards from. And we don't know. I'm guessing. Um, but he's he's a really good example, isn't he, to to watch for this because uh, every year come February, he's willing to do this. He's willing to turn up to all these no name races and flog himself and. Uh, put himself in the red zone and and blow up and and ride really erratically and it's just exaggerated because it's Ala Philippe. So that come April, uh, he's in the form of his life. Yeah, and uh, he's he's uh, at ease in his mind that you know of course, he actually would nearly won the thing. Yeah. Uh, but he's he's not racing uh, logically. He's actually putting himself to the sword and not protecting himself. It's it, you know using it you know and you should never you should never race to train. Um, you should always train to race, but he's using these for a purpose. And don't don't misunderstand. He is trying to win, but mm-hmm. um, but he's not he's not protecting himself to win it. Like he's mm-hmm. you know he's not got the team around him. He's just like out there on his own. You know, one of the guys from Quickstep came up behind him, and you know he was a chance to move up the podium. He wasn't helping Alphalip that much, so it's kind of not a, that's not what it's about. But when yeah. it comes to the real thing, it is. So so then so then he comes to this phase, and just to go on using this example, I know it's probably going too long, but um, but then once they've finished the Spring Classics, they don't keep the form. They go back and start their team build again. They will probably go back to altitude again because his next race will probably be. And I'm not trying to predict here, but it would probably be the Tour de France. Um, so, so then he's got from April to July to go back and repeat that, go back and do some recovery um, from the Spring Classics, um, uh, do some you know fun, easier riding, almost like a, a you know a little mini break, and then he'll go and do um, the Tour de Suisse, which is a you know three stage race or the um Paris nice you know do all these stage races that are going to get him used to get his body adapted to day after day after day after day racing so that when it comes to you know 21 days of the tour he can cope um so so he's again got the same formula you know recover uh go to altitude uh strength again so they're repeating the cycle and then he'll do the same for the world title it's no no coincidence that he actually won the world title. Mm-hmm. You know, him and Peter Sagan, Sagan won it three, three times. Mm-hmm. Alphalete's already won two. Um, so, you know, that formula, um, that's for a professional that works. But but what we're trying to say is, um, as an age grouper and an everyday person, you know, if you keep that fire burning, you can jump up for the the, the race in eight weeks' time. Um, it's better if you pick one race and work towards it, like we've we've given the example but if you want to do multiple events during the year and let's face it we're not professionals we're doing it for fun and we want to don't want to miss out on a lot of races so we could have lots of races in our calendar that we want to actually go and do um and so therefore if you just keep this um level of fitness going where you do for example after the Geelong half Ironman, I would not continue training people that week or possibly two weeks after that. They would do, be doing absolute recovery. But it also depends on when the next race is, how long their recovery goes for. Some people who don't have a race for a while can recover longer. Some people are lining up for Melbourne. It's a quick turnaround and back into it. Um, so so every, every situation de- deserves a different outcome. And so there's no one fit that fits everything. And you can say that about 1,000 topics that we bring up, um, that there's never one fit that fits every scenario. So you need to be flexible. But, but the generalizations we're making here, you should be really thinking and using. So I guess to finish it off and to summarize, we've really identified some of the key um, uh, physiological um, reasons to change your training program and that's based on your clear uh, weaknesses that you could identify or what phase of training you need to go into whether that's a strength phase or a base phase or a build phase or get yourself into racing form and they're all based around uh, training physiology and improving your uh, physical performance but I know that as a coach, you also look for some other factors that aren't necessarily related to training as key indicators and key factors as to why someone needs to change their program. And uh, I want you to, to talk about some of them, but some of them might be, you know, uh, demotivation in an athlete or um, just uh, you look back on a month and an athlete has just slowly increased the amount of sessions they're missing or... Um, or repetitively getting sick, you know, these sorts of uh, alarm bells or red flags are things that come up that uh, are really high indicators that someone needs to change what they're doing and do something different. 
Yeah, it's a hard conversation to have, isn't it? Um, when uh, someone's performance is stagnating or actually going worse. And and the job is between you and the athlete to identify what is actually going on. And it's really normally quite clear. And all the reasons you just gave um, are generally the reasons. There's always going to be a case where they've ticked every box. They've done everything right and they're still not improving. That's when you need to really hone in specifically on well, this program is not working for you. We need to change something ASAP. Um, if we've eliminated the fact that you've lost consistency, you've been sick, you've been injured, you've had a crash, um, you know, you've, you've been ill, um, you've had COVID, um, um, you're not motivated, you know, if once we've eliminated all those things and we're still left with you've done all those things well, um, then that's the time to you know, ask yourself, well, what are we doing wrong here? Well, you know, have we not concentrated on the weaknesses that um, that you have now shown that stopped you from improving? Um, and you need to change something. Um, the definition of insanity is keep repeating the same mistake and expecting a different result. So this is the only time where I would say, okay, let's change it. Let's try something completely different from the norm and experiment. Um, let's flip it around. Let's, let's do more um, of this type of training. Um, that's that, that you haven't done a lot of um, that maybe you need more of um, there will always be a reason though so so the hard part is finding out what the reason is um, and if you've eliminated all those and it comes back to the sessions aren't helping you which is really not going to be you know it's a low percentage this could be mm. in the one or two percent of people because um, generally over the journey it works Mm. Um, if you do everything well, you will slowly improve. Um, just chatting to someone, you know, before and um, and they've, you know, smashed out their hill climb FTP from 260 to 308 in the space of six months. It's fantastic improvement. Uh, so many things they did well. They trained well. They, they ticked all the boxes um, and they've learned how to execute the hill. When they first did it, they were too hard at the start faded and crashed and burned and now their execution so there's so many reasons why they've improved it's not just the training it's it's other factors um so those other factors are important and so is the training but at the end of the day um you know it takes time for these things to change it's not going to be i'll just do this for the next three weeks like i gave the example of myself that you know i've only gone up eight eight watts since the 16th of january which is four weeks and and some people might say, well, that's unreal, and it, is, and it is, but I'm still a long way from where I want to be, but it, it's a start. And, you know, and losing losing 10 kilo, you know, that can't happen in two weeks. It has to take six months or a year to do that so that you give yourself a realistic chance because anything that's, um, that's unsustainable, well, you're going to fail at it. So, um, you know, it has to be balanced. Um, so, so yeah, that's probably the last thing I want to say on on that, and 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 that would summarise it well because um, there would be always reasons why uh, you need to change things up. It's just trying to find out what you need to change and why you're changing it. I think they're the key things you have to ask yourself. And I guess to finish off, I really want to ask you this point uh, because there are some athletes, um, maybe you'd call them the star athletes, uh, that you do not want to change their program. You don't want to change their formula. You just want them to keep going like they are because year on year they're improving. And there's again, this has been a lower percentage of athletes, but um, yeah, what's what's kind of the identifying factors for someone, an athlete to say to themselves, no, I'm going really well and I just need to keep what I'm doing what I'm doing because I'll, I'll continue to reap the rewards. Yeah, look, we have talked about this uh, many, many years ago in some of the podcasts when we first started was if it's if it's not broken, don't fix it, you know. But you always want to try and improve, don't you? You want to tinker. You want to, you know, you want to experiment a little bit here and there. But you're right. We've got a, a small core group of people who are still improving and they're already at the top. You know, they're, they're national title holders. They're, they're Australian champions already in their age category. Um but they're still improving. We still had another example of that on the weekend when we did a race, just a, a local um, Trivello race, and almost 90% of the of the riders in that time trial did a PB. Um, you know, and and they're absolutely nailing their program and 
and I'm not tinkering with that at all. That that is something that that you know, unless something starts to, to go wrong, we will you know we will keep that journey going. Um, and and that's the beauty of having anecdotal evidence from years and years of training people. Um, you find out eventually what makes a person really click, and and getting that person to click at the right time is the key. And that's why um, you have to have. Uh, and be able to identify reasons why you should change. And if you if there's no reasons, then don't change. Mm-hmm. Um, Experiment, should, but don't change. Yeah, you shouldn't <laughs> change for the sake of change. And for example, if if we're trying to improve threshold, there's only so many ways you can improve threshold. <laughs> yeah. So you know, if it means you have to do five minute efforts or eight minute efforts for twelve weeks, then then don't complain that the session's boring. You're thinking about it the wrong way. The session is getting you the outcome. So embrace it and have the mindset that this is what I need to do. And I can't wait to see if my numbers are the same as last week or I, I can fractionally push myself a bit better. And that's the goal of looking at it the right way rather than going, oh, I've got 12 weeks of threshold, uh, uh, you know, five by five or, or four by eight or whatever the session is asking you to do. Um, you know, if you look at it like, oh, God, same old boring session, as you, we interviewed Monaghetti. Same old boring fart like mono fart like he did for twenty years um, is is something that he advocates and has you know made him one of the best marathoners of all time. Um, yet he did the same session week in week out. That's a good way to finish. Um, I think there's a lot to think about there. You know, when you're thinking, and that's the nature of a training program is is it is complex and it is based on pretty similar principles. And ironically, that last point, you know, don't don't fix things if they're not broken. But uh, it re- it really is important to think about what factors apply to you, which mean you need to change your training program. Uh, so we'll we'll leave it there. It's been a very packed episode. We hope you can think about some of these factors, whether they be re- with regards to your training and your training block, or whether they're regards to your own. Uh, you know, your own life and maybe uh, any emotional factors or mood factors that are impacting your training. But uh, that self-awareness is really key. So uh, use these factors, see if there's something you need to change um, and uh, hopefully that can help you improve for the future. Thank you very much for listening to this episode. We'll see you on the next one. 